in week number three of a series that we started on the so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament. We call it prophet reboot. These, we call them minor prophets. They have amazing things to say to us today, even in the modern age, even in the 21st century. And uh, we, we call them minor prophets uh, because the work that they do is small. Uh, compared to the, the larger works of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Those are big books. Any of you read Isaiah lately? 66 chapters. This is a long book. Yeah. Audio. Okay, well, that's a good way of doing it. Uh, but it's, those are long. Uh, some of the minor prophets you can read in 10 minutes, 5 minutes. I mean, we did the whole book of Jonah uh, just in our, in our gathering here in the morning. It's a really fast book. Uh, we did uh, Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk is the prophet who did what? He complained. He was the complaining prophet, and Jonah was the prophet who who did what? Complained as well. Complained as well. Yeah, well, yeah, he complained too, but he, he, he ran from God, right? We talked about the prophet who ran from God, the prophet who complained, uh, and these minor prophets, right? So you have um, three sections that Jesus mentioned, uh, how the Bible was divided back in his day. You have the law and the prophets and the writings, right? And the, the prophets are in that little section that the, the Hebrews call the Nevi'im. So you've got 12 of them there. And uh, I just, just by way of repetition, you have Hosea and Joel. We're going to cover Joel today. You have Amos. You have Obadiah. You have Jonah. You have Micah. You have Nahum, you have Habakkuk, you have Zephaniah, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi's here. No, not Malachi. Micah. Micah's here. Hi, Micah. He's very quiet. We have a baby who's named Micah. Amazing name. You know, those of you who are expecting, try Obadiah as a name. Right? You met any Obadiahs lately? Not really. So, uh, uh, again, by way of repetition, um, we often today... When we say this word prophet, or we say this word prophecy, we have all these things that come into our minds, and some of them are askew from the way that the Bible presents the prophet and, and prophecy and how it works. Uh, I get concerned when I see in the, you know, in the modern era, uh, we hear a prophet's in town. Um, I was preaching at a church last week about this, this same idea. And, and told them what I've been telling you. And there were people in the audience who had experienced the very same thing. You know, a prophet comes into town and we hear prophet so-and-so is here. And so what do we do? We, we all go run to the prophet and we want to see what the prophet's going to say. We want to see if there's going to be something supernatural that happens. And, and sometimes prophets, especially when it's done the wrong way, they can be sort of very similar to like a crystal ball reader but just using Christianity instead of a crystal ball. Uh, so it's, you know, we go see the prophet, and, you know, there's a lineup of people at the front of the church, and we see the prophet. The prophet looks into our eyes, and the prophet says, you will meet a nice man and get married. You'll meet a nice woman and get married. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll be healed of your this and your that. And we, you know, we, we interpret this, and we say this is prophecy. Um, when we look into the pages of the scripture, we see somewhat of a different picture. Today, everybody wants to be a prophet. Back then, nobody wanted to be a prophet. So most of the prophets, when we read them, they were reluctant 
in, the, in their, their, their choice of, you know, serving the Lord in that way. They felt unworthy to, to, to be that spokesperson for God. You know, you see Isaiah saying, woe to me when God calls him. You see, there's this kind of a pattern where they feel very much like, I don't want this job. Uh, because the prophet's job was not really to tickle people's ears with messages that would make them happy. That, that's not really what they did, and, and that's not what they do today. Uh, I do believe that prophecy exists today and that people can be used in that gift today, but often it's a, it operates quite differently than what we expect. Um, so in the Bible, we see that prophets do two things. They, they foretell and they foretell. That's an easy way of remembering it. So foretelling is when the prophet speaks on behalf of the heart of God. And the, the prophet says, this is the mind of God on the matter. And they're sort of the mouthpiece of God. On whatever situation, perhaps it's the nation of Israel, which it often is in the Old Testament. It could be a person, could be a king, could be a specific situation. And they'll say, this is the voice, this is the heart of God on this particular matter. And often, what they would be doing there is they'd be reminding the people of what they already knew. So they had the law, they had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as they're called today. And it was, listen, Israel... You're supposed to be living this way. You're supposed to be doing this and this and this, but you're not doing what God has already told you to do. And so there's trouble because of this. And there was often a message that would confront people as the prophet would foretell the mind of God on the situation of the nation. And it was often a disturbing message. It doesn't mean that it wasn't an edifying message. You can still be edified and disturbed. Uh, but it was a message that was kind of, you guys need to get back in line with what God has already told you to do. Uh, and this is foretelling. And then there would be a piece that we see in the prophets that's foretelling, where they would, they would say this and this and this is going to happen in the future. Um, because of such and such a situation, and because this has transpired, this is what's now going to happen in the future, and that's foretelling. Uh, foretelling, I'm sorry. We like the foretelling part uh, when it tickles our ears, uh, but we don't so much like the foretelling part. And they were often despised, these prophets. You often see them persecuted. You often see that, you know, they're known as kind of the bearers of bad news, because, again, they're, they're often trying to steer people uh, in the right direction. Jonah and um, Habakkuk are a bit unusual. They're really, really easy to read, especially Jonah. Jonah's a straight narrative. Uh, Habakkuk is a conversation between him and God. We're going to look today at one that's a little more difficult, and this is the prophet Joel. Really nice name. People still name their, their kids uh, Joel. And this is a prophet who has lessons for us about daily life, but he's also a prophet who saw the end. He saw an image. He saw a picture uh, of, of kind of the end of time. He's a little bit harder to follow. He's only three chapters long, and he uses a kind of an oracle way of, of communicating. So he, he uses imagery that's very, very strong. He uses uh, uh, language that's, that's difficult to interpret sometimes. But a lot of the stuff you can still get. 
The problem with Joel is he's a little bit mysterious. So again, the prophets write in a context in general. Uh, just to, to go over it with you, you remember that um, uh, Israel was a nation divided. Uh, in 922, you have the, the split in the, in the kingdom with the 10 tribes going to the north, which you called Israel, and the two tribes going to the south, which you called Judah. And this was largely because of Solomon's problems. Uh, there was this, this split in the nation, effectively a civil war in the nation. That's a major event that the prophets are writing in. Uh, we know that in 722, the, the Assyrians would come in and they would take Israel to the north. Uh, they would take them siege. Uh, we know that Jonah, who we looked at, he had preached to their capital city um, in, uh, in Nineveh, which was the capital city of, of Assyria. This was before the invasion that took place in 722. Again, I tell you this because this is the context that the prophets write in. Um, we know that the Babylonians would conquer the Assyrians in 612. And then we know that the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem in a couple of uh, three attacks, really. We know that Habakkuk, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he wrote just before that invasion. That there's a context, and that's, that's really important for you to get. Um, we know that the, the Persians, the Medo-Persians, would take the Babylonians in 539. We read this in the book of Daniel. We know that later on, Cyrus the Persian would return the exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. We know all that stuff. We've looked at it already. The problem with Joel is where, where is he coming from in his context? Where is he, what's he have in mind as he's writing? When is he writing? What do we know about him? And the answer is nothing. We, he's very mysterious. We know that his name means the Lord is God, but we really don't have a clue when he wrote. Uh, there are different theories. Some people say it was after Cyrus returned the exiles back to Jerusalem. Some people say it's even before the Assyrians took Israel to the north. He doesn't give us a real context as to when he's writing. We don't know much about him at all. So how is he going to speak to, to us today, and how would the people who initially read his work even understand what he's talking about? Uh, but Joel has powerful messages for us today, and they're really fairly simple, uh, starting with uh, what I'll call the locusts of consequence. The, the book opens this way. Uh, in Joel chapter 1. You can, hopefully you found it on your smartphone or in your Bible. You'll, you know, if your Bible has a table of contents, now would be a good time to, to use it, okay? Joel chapter 1, verses 2 to 7. Here's how it opens. Uh, Hear this, you elders, listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. Uh, to, uh, and let your children tell it to their children and, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. I'll show you locusts in a minute. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So this is a bad, bad time that he sees. It's probably a time that's happening in, in his era, and there's like this swarm of locusts that he sees. And he says in verse 5, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. 
Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land. We don't know what nation. Maybe he sees the Assyrians coming. Maybe he sees the Babylonians coming. We don't know. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. And it has teeth like that of a lion and fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my figs. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. And you read the rest of the chapter, and it's a time of devastation in his land, uh, a time of drought, a time of famine, a time where there, there's nothing left, where joy has been stripped away because of these, these locusts and this swarm of locusts that have come and devoured everything. And he sees these locusts as figurative of something else, an army that's coming. I want you to see what he's drawing from uh, and show you a little video about locusts. I've, I hope you don't get too scared by it, but you'll understand what he means when he talks about, you know, these, these young locusts and these older locusts. It's an amazing thing to see locusts swarm. Go ahead and show the video. Sorry to creep you out this morning. Have you ever seen anything like that? So locusts, if you'll remember, the, the Israelites would know about locusts from a very famous event that took place, right? Back, back in Egypt, remember the 10 plagues? Well, one of the plagues was a plague of, of desert locusts that God sent. Well, here you have locusts, but there's, it's a different context here. And uh, this, is, this is a locust army, a vast, vast uh, swarm of locusts that has eaten everything. And so the land that Joel sees is one where there's been devastation. Again, the locusts have eaten everything. There's drought. There's famine. And he's, he's very, very alarmed by this. And you wonder to yourself as you read the narrative, well, where these, where these locusts come from? You know, um, uh, verse 10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the, the grain is destroyed. I mean, it's like everything is laid bare. The, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Uh, he, he calls out to the farmers and he says, wail, you, you, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley. Because the, the harvest of the field is destroyed and the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. I mean, he just sees nothing but devastation. And he says, surely the joy of mankind has withered away. And you read about this devastation in the story. And then you come to see, well, why are they there? And the reason that they're there is shocking uh, in chapter 2, God identifies himself as the source of the swarm. And he says in verse 25, which we'll look at in a few minutes, that that locust swarm is his great army that he sent into the land. Say, wow, that is, that is something else. And, it, and, and God is saying through this prophet that these locusts are a consequence to the sin of the nation. 
He doesn't identify the sin. He doesn't call them out on some specific thing. But it's clear that God is the one that sent this, this army of locusts. Uh, on the screen, you see it a shot from a, a locust swarm in Argentina in 2016. The boy is trying to swat the locusts away. They still happen today, the swarms. And that, that swarm is only four miles wide. You heard on the video, they get 40 miles wide. Imagine 40 mile wide thing of, you know, billions of these little creatures, quite something. But we see that those locusts are there because God sent them there. And it's a powerful uh, lesson for us uh, today in that uh, God visits us with consequences for our sin. And it's staggering to me that we often think that uh, we can do things and, you know, we can sort of get away with them. And there isn't the consequence of these locusts as they're shown uh, in, in the, the narrative of Joel. And, but he sees clearly that this army is sent uh, by God. On the screen, uh, you're going to see a picture. Any of you have a Samsung phone? Most of you probably have Samsung phones. You either have an Apple or you have a Samsung, or if you're like me, you have a Blackberry. Any Blackberries in here except me? Oh, one Blackberry. Yay for the Blackberries. Well, those of you who have Samsung phones, a big piece of news came out uh, this week. They finally finished like the trial of the century in, the, in South Korea. Hong will know about this. You're from South Korea. And uh, this fellow who's the, the current chief of Samsung is going to jail for five years uh, because of a, of a rather large scandal that actually deposed uh, the president of South Korea. Uh, a few months ago, she was deposed, and uh, now he's going to jail because the two of them essentially colluded together. He, he bribed her to give special powers and favors to him, and you know, it was quite a mess there. Uh, and it's a huge, huge event uh, in South Korea, and he is, is going to jail as part of this scandal. He was just sentenced a few days ago, still in denial and still saying that he did nothing wrong. Uh, but those are the locusts of consequence, friend, that, 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 that's visiting this man uh, because of the things that he did. And it's amazing to me that we often think when we, you know, when we transgress against the law of God, when we sin against God, we often think to ourselves, well, you know, there's a, way, there's a way around this. You know, we put it in a little box and we kind of compartmentalize it and we say, well, I think I can get away with it. I don't think it's so bad. We rationalize it. But God will, in time, he will visit us with the consequences of our actions. And he does this, apparently, in the book of Joel to get the attention of the people. And those consequences come, and sometimes those consequences can be painful. Um, Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6. He says, he says do not be deceived. Uh, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, he says, if we don't give up. So it's basically, you're going to get consequences one way or the other. Which one do you want to have? And God will visit us with those, with those locusts in, in a way because he loves us. 
and because he wants to get our attention and because he wants to uh, teach us and he wants to discipline us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the father who disciplines his child because he loves his child. Uh, how many of you have kids in the room? Many of you, right? You, you know that those consequences that they face and that sometimes you have to impose, well, you have to impose them because if you don't, and if they don't realize, hey, this behavior has this result, well, then what's going to happen when they get older and they think that, well, this behavior will have no result, they'll be really surprised when they do face the result. So we have that job of sometimes showing them, hey, uh, these are the consequences for your actions. And this is kind of what's going on here in this divine uh, uh, way that Joel sees in this vast, vast swarm of locusts and all this desolation and how the very joy is just kind of sucked away from the land. And that's what sin does in the end. It robs you of who you are, robs you of your, of your joy, of your very sustenance. You know, everything is just gone. It's just a barren wasteland in the heart of the person. And then Joel continues with the second part of his book, and he talks about repentance. And he really raises what I would call the alarm of repentance. And it's like he's trying to get people's attention to get them to repent. Repent is um, a word that I guess we often misunderstand today. Uh, repentance, there's a little diagram I found, and it's this idea of turning away from something and turning to something else. The word means a, a, like a total shift, a total change of mind about a particular matter where it's not just that you say, well, I regret what I did. No, no, it's a total, total shift of mind, a total transformation that takes place uh, in the mind about the particular behavior. So you have the, the fellow on the left there, and he, he's walking in one direction. You know, he's walking towards sin and towards death and towards Satan. And then you have this idea of, well, he turns from that uh, because of God who he experiences, and then he starts to turn to something else. So it's like a 180-degree turn that he makes. It's not just regret that he has. He has a total, total shift in the ways that he's thinking. And he turns to God. He turns to salvation. Uh, he turns to, to life itself. And this is what, uh, what Joel is trying to say to the people. So chapter 1, verse 2, hear this, you elders. Chapter 1, verse 5, you know, wake up, you drunkards. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11, despair, you farmers. Uh, verses 13 to 14, put on sackcloth, O priests, and, and mourn and wail. And you who minister before the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. See, these prophets had a tough job, very tough job. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God, declare a holy fast, he says. I mean, he's calling the people to some serious, serious repentance. Call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Big, big prayer meeting he's calling for, and a big change of heart. Blow the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 1. Sound the alarm on my holy hill, he says. Uh, so he's really calling for the people to change something about themselves. 
even now declares the Lord, verse, seven, uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, he says, and not your garments. Key verse there. Return to the Lord your God, for he's a gracious God, and he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows he may turn, and he may have pity, and he may leave behind a blessing. Rend your heart, not your garments. When, when they, would, they would tear their garments in repentance, he's saying, well, that's, that's not enough. You, you need to have a change of heart. And sometimes we need to revisit the idea of repentance and understand what it is. It goes beyond regret. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 11 explains this very well. Paul says to the church uh, in his second letter, and he says, I, even if I caused you sorrow in my first letter, uh, which was, uh, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's a very strong, very direct letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Ah, that's a different thing. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. There's something healthy that happened, he's saying to that church. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced uh, in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. A great example of this to think about in the, in the New Testament, you have the apostle Peter and you have Judas. You both know who those guys are? So Peter and Judas both had experiences when Jesus faced the cross that were very, very difficult, right? So Peter, he, he denies Jesus to his face. You know, that rooster crows, and Peter's in the midst of saying, I don't know who he is. And they're saying, well, you sound like a Galilean. Your accent seems to give you away. You're with him. And no, 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 I don't know who he is. And he denies him. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, and the Lord looks straight at Peter. And we see that Peter has this tremendous regret that he denies even knowing Jesus himself. And it says he goes off and he weeps bitterly. The Apostle Peter. And we see also around the same time, we have Judas, who's part of, you know, Jesus's band of merry men, you could call them. And you have Judas, and Judas sells out Jesus for some pieces of silver, and he reveals the location where Jesus is so that the, the, the band of uh, uh, people with the clubs, however many there were, would go and arrest him. And, you know, he, he sells him out. And Judas has regret for sure. He wants to give the money back. They say, you keep your money. I mean, he ends up doing what? Taking his own life. So there's no question that Judas has regret. Peter has regret. But we see a very different thing happen with Peter. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, we see that uh, Jesus appears to his band of merry men again, and he's on the shore, they're, they're in a boat, there's an experience there where, you know, they realize it's him, and 
Peter's there, and Peter, as soon as Peter sees that it's him, he jumps out of the boat into the water, and he's hiding. Uh, but then he has uh, the presence of mind somehow to pick himself up and face Jesus. And he has a confrontation with Jesus, and Jesus confronts him, and he says, Peter, uh, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you. And he says, what, Peter? Well, feed my lambs. And he says it to Peter again, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you. And he's, well, and he's, he's, he's challenging him, and then he does it a third time. And so Jesus is reminding Peter of his own denial. Ouch, painful. But something happened in that man. There was a moment of repentance there. Could be when he decided to get back in that boat and get to the shore and have it out and have that face-to-face discussion with Jesus. Didn't run away from him, but faced him and faced the consequences of his action. And he's beautifully restored and reinstated by Jesus himself. And he, of course, becomes the you know, one of the leaders in the early church that we see uh, in the book of Acts. There's a difference between regret and repentance. And repentance leads to this transformation that's very, very powerful uh, in the life of the believer. But there is a difference. And Joel is calling these people not only to rend their garment, but to rend their very heart and to have a transformation where they see life differently and where they're looking at the way that they behave and it's totally changed, totally uh, transformed. So you want to you know the difference. Think of Judas and think of Peter, and that's a pretty good example. And then you see the promise of restoration that happens. The people apparently uh, are repenting, and Joel sees this, And there's this beautiful promise that God gives that he's going to restore them as a result. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 19 to 26. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain. Grain. That's what the locusts ate. New wine and and oil. uh, Enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army Far from you. Maybe that's the Assyrians, we're not sure. Pushing it into a parched and barren land with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. And it's very strong what he's saying there. Be not afraid, verse 21, O land, be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Great things. Uh, Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green again. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. Wow. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, everything that the locusts ate. The, vast, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Just to pause, when Jesus transformed the water into wine, this new wine, this was an image that the people looked at Jesus and they said, oh, he's bringing us new wine. We know that from the book of Joel. Uh, I will repay you, verse 25 of chapter 2, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. Wow, the years 
the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, all those things you saw on the screen, my great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you're full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. I will repay the years that the locusts have eaten. Wow, that is a powerful promise of restoration. The conditions that he sees that will come are even better than they were before the locusts came. And this is what happens when people repent. Uh, God restores, and he restores often in a, in a way that's beyond expectation. But he promises, friends, that he will repay those years. You know, sometimes people do things and they think, not even God can forgive me for this one. Not even God can, can fix this one. Not even God can repair this. And here he promises, even the years that have been taken away from your life as a result of this devastation, as a result of this sin, this transgression, whatever it was, God is faithful and God will restore. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah, that's really, really good news. And then Joel goes even further, and he sees this whole thing as a picture of what is going to come upon the whole world. Uh, he, sees, he sees into the future to a faraway place, it seems. And he describes things that almost seem like, you know, global eschatological end times kind of thing that, that he starts to see. And you read that at the back end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he calls it the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Any of you watch the eclipse this week? You're so sleepy. Did any of you look at the eclipse? Hopefully not like Donald Trump. Maybe you put your glasses on. He did put glasses on eventually, you know. Yeah, there's two pictures, one with him like this and one with him with the glasses on, okay? Uh, I watched the eclipse. I had a little, a little uh, they call it a pinhole camera. You take a little piece of cardboard and you, you put a pinhole in it and you can see, you know, you look at the little piece of paper and you can see it. Some of you I saw on Facebook, you did the paper plate thing. You take a paper plate and you put a pinhole in it and you just let it go on the ground there and the sun will... Well, what happens in, the, in the, the eclipse? Do you know what it is? Right? The, 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 tell me, what goes in front of what? Yeah, the moon, the moon does um, a photobomb of your view of the sun, right? <laughs> My daughter calls it that. Hey, it's a photobomb. Yeah, it's true. That's what it is. So it, this is an amazing thing to watch. We only, we only got about 60% of the, of the sun blocked uh, but it was enough to change the light, and, you know, it was a little bit bizarre. I don't know if you noticed how the sun was kind of, where, where did the light go? It's a little strange is what's happening. Um, and when these eclipses happen nowadays, we can predict them, right? We know exactly what time. We can stream it live on the Internet. You know, there was a channel where you could just watch the whole thing from the comfort of your home, and, you know, you got it all predicted, and it's all... But there's an unpredictability about, in particular, a solar eclipse that people love. Like, people are addicted to watching full solar eclipses. They don't only happen, you know, once every 99 years. Maybe in North America or in the United States, you can only see a full one once every century, whatever. But solar eclipses happen often. But there is this mystery and this kind of unpredictability about what's that going to look like how will we feel when we look at it? 
And people are like addicted to this. I mean, there are people going to small towns in Oregon and Wyoming and all this to go and watch this thing for a minute and a half. And there's some images that are just dynamite that you can see, uh, you know, on social media where you've got this, this, this beautiful little halo around the, the, the moon there, and the moon is just black, and yet the sun turns black for a time there, and you see this halo. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. And people talk about, you know, an emotional experience, almost like a religious experience when they watch an eclipse. But we can predict them. Uh, back in the day of, of Joel, um, it, it's, it was a little bit different than that. We didn't have all this technology where we could say, okay, at this particular time and second in this location, you know, we're going to see a solar eclipse and the sun is going to turn dark. Back then, it would have been quite a significant thing because if you got a full solar eclipse happening, you know, animals start thinking it's nighttime and everything is thrown off kilter. You know, our rhythm changes and it, just for a moment, the, everything is off here. This is different. This is not what we're used to. And Joel, he's going to use these kinds of images uh, to talk about what he sees uh, in the future, and he calls it the day of the Lord. Pentecostals, we know this passage very, very well because Peter quotes it in the book of Acts, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And afterward, uh, you have to see what the afterward is. There's a lot that happens before the afterward. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So that's male and female. Your old men will dream dreams. A couple of old guys in here. Yeah, your old men will dream dreams, he says. Um, and your young men will see visions. You know, even on my servants, both men and women. Another statement about gender. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Wow, incredible days that he sees. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and Billows of smoke, Whew, the imagery before the great uh, coming, uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day uh, of the Lord. Uh, the sun will be turned to darkness, he says, and the moon to blood. I've got a, I've got a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse there. Lunar eclipse is where the 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 moon turns like a blood red. A couple of years ago, there was a series of, uh, of lunar eclipses. People called them blood moons. Any of you hear of this before? And there are people who say, oh, the four blood moons, they're all happening on Jewish holidays. And, you know, the rapture is going to happen and Jesus is going to come and all that. And I told people, I said, this nonsense, Jesus is not coming because of these four blood moons. These kinds of things happen often. And, of course, everybody who said Jesus was going to return was wrong. Because whenever anyone says they know when Jesus is going to return, they're wrong, right? That's the one thing we know. Anyone who says they know when he's coming, they're wrong, <laughs> okay? They can give a, you know, a general idea, but we, we can't pinpoint anything there. Uh, so I got a solar one and a lunar one there. And Joel, he sees both of these in this vision. You know, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. So things are going to happen in the heavens that are going to be, they're going to throw everyone off kilter is what he's saying. 
A solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse cannot happen at the same time. It's impossible. Okay, if you know what the astronomy is there, it's impossible for it to happen. But he sees it's beyond just natural stuff. He sees things that are coming that are going to jar everybody. He sees things in the future uh, that he speaks of a time here. Um, you know, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. There's going to be supernatural things that are going to happen. You'll even see them in the heavens. You'll even see them in the sky. And the amazing thing about this passage of Scripture is that Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2, and he says that period of time that Joel talked about is starting now. When the day of Pentecost happens and the people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in these, these languages that they never could have learned, they never traveled anywhere, and yet they're speaking all these languages from these other places, everybody says, what's wrong with these people? They're, they're kooks, they're drunk, they're this, they're that. And Peter says, no, 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 no. The time that Joel talked about is starting now. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men are going to, you're young, this is what's happening now. So he's, he, it kind of inaugurates this time that Joel talks about. It's very powerful. And this thing about all these things in the sky, I don't believe that this has happened yet. But you and I, friends, may live to see it. Uh, what's the point of, of all of this? It's that the, the illustration that he gives about the locusts of consequence uh, and the, the, the idea of repentance and restoration, this is going to happen on a global scale. So the entire creation is going to be redeemed, is what he's saying. Uh, it, it, the idea that God is not just, he's not just after one person. He's, he wants to redeem all of creation. All of creation has fallen, and he wants to redeem it all. And he's calling the people to repentance so that they may be saved. And, and Peter talks about this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. you got to make a choice is what he's saying. Are you going to choose to repent? Are you going to choose to experience God's restoration? Or are you not going to? Uh, I, I, by no means am I a universalist, okay? I don't believe that everybody's going to heaven and that everybody ultimately, you know, gets saved and becomes a Christian and we all live happily ever after. It's pretty clear in the scripture that we've got a decision to make. And Joel definitely is calling people to a decision. What will our decision be? But he's got a picture of the future where it doesn't just affect, you know, the ones and the twos. It's going to affect everybody. He sees a time coming, and he sees it as a great day, but he also sees it as a dreadful day, uh, a day of judgment, a day of wrath. And you read the rest of the book, and you see imagery that almost looks like it's, you know, you, you see similar things in the book of Revelation, you know, great armies and battles and God fighting on behalf of his people and all this kind of thing. And uh, Revelation echoes this, that what we see in the book of Joel. And this is because the, 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 the coming of the Lord is a reality, friends. It's something that, that we need to be thinking about again, something that we need to be meditating on again, because it affects our daily lives. Uh, do we really think, you know, that we can get away with it? Do we really think that God won't visit us with consequences? Do we really think that God is so small that he can't forgive us and that he can't restore us. Oh, he can. 
So this message from Joel, it wasn't meant, I don't believe, to be one of doom and gloom, uh, but one of hope, one of a promise, uh, a promise that will ultimately affect us all. So thus endeth the book of Joel. Are you still, you're still okay? You're not too freaked out by the locusts? Okay, would you stand with me? I'd like the band to come back, and they're going to do one more song uh, and do a, do a recap there of uh, This I Believe. You know, that's a great, great song. With uh, The lyrics are very powerful, and they remind us of the things that we believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Christ, Christ the Son. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, these things we need to remind ourselves of. So I'd like them to sing it a couple of times, uh, and then I'm going to pray and dismiss.